podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. A trip to Molyneux following a questionable victory in Newport, while Marcus Rashford continues to entertain a host of back pages. Just some of the topics coming up after an exclusive chat with two of the leading figures of the Manchester United Supporters Trust on the latest episode of your Stradicast. You are very welcome to the latest installment of the Stradicast. And on this day, we are delighted to welcome two men who hold Manchester United very close to their hearts. After two decades of fan disgruntlement regarding the ownership and mismanagement of the club, a multitude of supporter groups have risen to prominence fighting for the cause on multiple fronts. Now, front and centre stands the Manchester United Supporters Trust, or MUST for short, and we are extremely pleased to introduce CEO Duncan Drasdo. Duncan, thank you for taking the time to speak with us this evening. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Very happy to be here. We are also extremely pleased to welcome a key must board member in Chris Rumford. Chris, you're also very welcome to the study cast. How are you keeping? I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, like Duncan, happy to be here and, and join your esteemed production. You're very kind. You're too kind. Before we dive into the present, uh, I'm always conscious that not every member of our ever-expanding listenership will be fully up to speed on the cause that we are going to discuss so, Duncan, for the ear that would like a little introduction, can I ask you to supply a brief description of the work you've been involved in since 1998? Yeah, sure. I mean, how we actually started was we were Manchester United shareholders. And in 1998, Rupert Murdoch and B Sky B attempted to take over the club, which would have meant that us as fans would all have lost our shares, which we feel is very important part of uh, being a fan to us. It's actually sort of the uh, closing of the circle in some way of uh, for a supporter to be both uh, a fan, a, a customer, of course, is the way the business would look at it, but also a part owner. Um, and so when uh, when Murdoch tried to take over, there were a number of people who said, we're going to try and do something about it. We're going to resist it. They started a group called Shareholders United Against Murdoch. So that was when we were established. It was SUAM in those days. Um, that takeover was blocked eventually through political lobbying. Monopolies and Mergers Commission blocked the takeover. And so we decided that we ought to then carry on pushing for increased fan share ownership and to try and head off any future such challenge. And so we converted then to Shareholders United, which was essentially an organisation advocating for fans to become shareholders in the club. And we created a share scheme back then, which made it easy for fans to buy a share in the club. And then we could vote those shares collectively. And we did that uh, and built up that uh, fan base. There were 32,000 people who bought shares through us uh, and another about 38,000 on the share register. So something like 70,000 fan shareholders at uh, 12th of May 2005, when the Glazers uh, succeeded in taking over the club, obviously, in the, the year or so prior to that takeover, we'd done everything we could to try and head it off. We didn't have the political uh, lobbying angle because uh, the Glazers weren't broadcasters in the same way that Murdoch was, so there wasn't the same way to oppose the takeover. But what we did was we informed supporters why it was a bad thing, 
We told everyone about the debt and the damage it would do. And I can tell you, we were called scaremongers and told that we were deluded and we just didn't understand business and all these sort of things. And, you know, I mean, it, it isn't blowing our own trumpet to say we've been proved absolutely right. And I think, you know, almost every fan now accepts that. It took until when uh, Sir Alex Ferguson retired, probably, until people started to see the true damage that the Glazers had done because he kind of papered over the cracks with his incredible management skills, maintained that momentum of success right until his final season. And so suddenly we're confronted with the situation that uh, the, the Glazers' debt and the, the, the damage they've done to the club, the fracturing of our fan base are all starting to, you know, chickens coming home to roost. Um, but... We, we'd, we'd launched campaigns all through that period. You know, the, the, the second uprising, if you want to call it that, after 2005 was 2010. People may remember the Green and Gold campaign. That was orchestrated by us. And uh, in, in fact, our now finance director, Andy Green, was one of the main people who educated people on the, the finances of the club. Uh, and, the, and the damage that would be done with a bond issue, which was the thing that kicked things off in 2010. And that excited a group of people called the Red Knights. Um, you know, they've never actually, I don't think, come forward and admitted who they were. But, you know, most people know Jim O'Neill, now Lord O'Neill, was one of them. They tried to uh, put together a takeover. Ultimately, that wasn't successful. And I think we all can see partly why in recent times when we've seen what valuation the Glazers are putting on the club. Um, so that was unsuccessful. The club then went on in 2012 to have a, a flotation on the New York Stock Exchange. And that probably signaled really the end to any hope of us removing the Glazers through kind of financial pressure because it gave them access to finance, uh, took away the, the challenge they had with the, the debt payments, the pick debt as it was. Um, and made it very difficult to motivate supporters to do anything. You know, we'd been advocating for fans to keep protesting all through that period, but there was just no interest anymore, no momentum. I mean, you know, the last protest I remember was the Manchester derby, and I was literally the only person there <laughs> on the back car park where the helicopter was, and nobody else turned up. Uh, well, in fact, Ian Sterling turned up, in fact, to, to come and retrieve me from security. But, uh, you know, we thought we realised the game was up in terms of protest at that point. But I suppose the, the performance on the pitch hadn't yet really dipped at that point. So there wasn't really a popular uprising among supporters. Um, and following this, uh, the flotation, the, the club actually reached out to us for the first time in many years and said, maybe we should actually start having a dialogue rather than having, uh, you know, just a, a negative relationship. And, you know, prior to that, they'd broken off relations with us. We'd always had a very good relationship with the, the club, the board, uh, and worked with the club. But it was them that chose to break it off because, obviously, the owners were uncomfortable with our, our campaign against them. So I think that kind of summarises up to that point when we reopened the dialogue. And it was very slow at first. There was a lack of trust on both sides. But what we felt was... We don't believe that we're in a position to, to change the ownership. But what we can do is try and get the best deal for supporters. And the only way to do that, or the way that you can do that best, is obviously through dialogue. And I should say, this is dialogue from the owners, who obviously we still have the same concerns and uh, you know uh, unhappiness about how they, they took over the club and the damage they've done. So I think that kind of brings us up almost to date in that 
you know, that dialogue has got better. I think we've done more and been able to to, to get more wins for supporters over over that period of time. Just on that dialogue, um, Duncan, how important is that? Because I think a lot of people get the perception that because Moss has have a dialogue with the club, that therefore they're in bed with the club. And that that's not necessarily the case because there's obviously things that you disagree with, with the club on. But how important is it to have that dialogue since it opened? Yeah, I mean, in bed with is a sort of, you know, emotive term, isn't it? I mean, certainly, you know, and, and again, I would distinguish. I mean, we want to have a close relationship with the club. It's our football club. That's what it should be. And it is different from, uh, you know, the relationship with the owners, you know, because they've been negative, in our view, over, over the full period of their ownership. But if you want to influence things for the betterment of supporters and indeed for the football club itself, the way to do that is to deal with the executive management. And so that's been our role to try and do that the best we can to try and consult with supporters and represent their views. And I'm sure Chris will talk a little bit more about that in particular because he's the man with his finger on the pulse in terms of our manifesto and, and, and so on. I'd first just stress... Duncan, you know, the real tangible wins that have been achieved through dialogue with the club over recent years. You know, the return of standing to Old Trafford. We're one of the first, you know, Premier League stadiums to have standing. We've now got, I think, more standing areas than other clubs. That was a long-standing ask of ours. Uh, We're claiming the Stretford end so that, you know, the, the corporate facilities that are in the heart of the Stretford end are being removed at the end of this season after our campaigning um uh, for 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 many years, um, the the end of the automatic cup scheme, where you know every season t- ticket holder had to buy every uh, cup ticket to attain their season ticket. So you know, there's just three examples, but it it there's you know there's a lot of attention sometimes on the high profile campaigns against the owners or whatever. But actually, for match going fans, probably those those real wins we achieved through dialogue. I mean, for heaven's sake, cutting the price of beer, you know, uh, was also another one. You know, those things probably matter more to more fans than some of the some of the, you know, big arguments about ownership and governance and the like. And Chris, Duncan is obviously after touching on the fact that you're a man with a finger on the pulse and a button. Uh, How would you describe a standard day, week, month in the life of most hierarchy? Um. I mean, we, 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 we meet as a group about, well, in terms of a proper formal meeting, about twice a, twice a month, so every, every two weeks, although there's a lot of informal contact as well as that, in, uh, including, you know, a beer on match day in the sort of must house. Most of you will have seen uh, walking uh, walk to the ground. Uh, meetings with the club. I mean, Duncan will do far more of those than than I will, because you know I have a I have a day job uh, as well. But there's periodic meetings with the club. Most recently, one with Jim Ratcliffe, which I'm sure will will uh, come back to. Um, and um, yeah, you know, we are we are mostly volunteers, so we are giving out our spare time to do this stuff. Uh, yesterday, Duncan and I had a what, what three hour meeting um, to discuss. Um, how we take forward, you know, the the membership offer. Um, so yeah, it takes up takes up a lot of time, and um, um, but we'll you know we'll we'll do it willingly uh, for the greater good and in in the interests of United fans. In terms of that, in terms of looking at it for the greater good for United fans, 
between both of you and between the organization, the message of who we are and what we do is very much being pushed out on social media and across as many channels as you possibly can. Is it an attempt to reconnect with the fan base? And what are the ultimate aims by this very, very public sentiment that's going across now? You know, the organization has changed a lot over the years. And Duncan's told a bit of the history uh, right now. And, uh, you know, we were for a long time, I guess, primarily a protest organization with um, you know, with not much of a, a, a dialogue with with the club. That's changed a lot in recent years. And so really, it's an attempt to try and define who we are and what we do. Any organisation needs to define itself, because if it doesn't, someone else will define it um, for them. So we've tried to say, who are we? Well, we're a group of people who are here to build a future for Manchester United where the views needs priorities and interests of supporters are central to the running of the club. That's our vision. We want a Manchester United where our needs and your needs as fans are central to the running of the club. And then we tried to define the the five ways we do that. Firstly, you know, we use the position we've got to represent fans' voices to the club. So we've got the access and the influence to tell the senior management of the club you know, what what fans want. Um, we use our media profile and our, our 100,000 membership to campaign on fans' priorities. Obviously, we were prominent in the campaign to stop the Super League, reclaiming the Stratford End, safe standing I've already talked about. Um, we are working and, uh, you know, to be, recover a position where fans who want to can buy a stake in the club and buy a share in the club, because ultimately we think that's the best way to make sure we're never ignored again, if you actually own a stake, even a very small one. The next area we do is we stand up for fans and make sure they're fairly treated, an area Duncan and before him our friend Ian did so much work in, picking up individual cases of fans who were badly treated, of European aways, all sorts of things, police issues, all sorts of things. We've, we've helped hundreds of Reds protect um, uh, their rights. And the last thing we need to do in order we do all of the other ones is listen. We need we need to be constantly listening to fans so that we understand their views and are able to uh, represent them, understand what they want. So we're able to take their voice to the club and where necessary to the outside world. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that that you know it is a work in progress. We're you know we're constantly trying to improve and be better at that. You know, there's been periods where we've we've kind of been relatively dormant as an organisation, and we've had new energy injected by new people coming and getting involved. And you know, we're open to new people. I mean, a lot of the problem we've had in the past actually is that people aren't motivated to volunteer their time and to get involved. And you know, trying to get people to come and be involved in the committee or come onto the board has been a challenge. And actually what happens is it's only at periods where it gets exciting that suddenly lots of people want to do it. And of course, then you get other groups spring up who decide that they want to do the same thing, but do it their own way. And that's fine. You know, every fan's entitled to do that. But a lot of the work is is very unglamorous. You know, people think that there's some sort of perks or, or whatever to being involved and actually... It's giving up a lot of time and a lot of dull meetings and listening to people. Even when you don't agree with them, you've got to listen to every every fan's point of view. Taking the flack, you know, that rolls off your back to a degree. But of course, you know, if your own fans are 
or criticising, then it's always uh, cuts more than it would do if it was, you know, coming from the opposition supporters, if you like. So, you know, it, it's rewarding in some situations, but, you know, there's a lot of it is just dull hard work as well. Can you touch on there, Duncan, is the criticism that you receive and, and most as a group receives? And as you said, it's it can be hard to take at times. So social media, as we've obviously discussed off screen many times, can be a, quite a toxic area to be involved in. And it's probably the main area you're going to see criticism from from fans. What is How hard is it to listen to people slating something every time you try to do something or when you put a bit of energy into something positive to know that before you even put it up, it's going to get knocked back and instantly slated with the, the, the old stereotypical comments of embed with the glazers, got a seat at the table, don't do anything, don't represent the fans. I mean, at a human level, it's got to piss you off listening to that kind of stuff every day. But does it ever take yeah. away from the motivation to keep going or, or how do you deal with the, the criticism? I mean, you've got to remember that, you know, we've been uh, listening to that for, for a long time, you know, more than a decade, certainly, or certainly since since Fergie retired, when people have been pissed off. I mean, when when your fan base is unhappy, they tend to turn and, and try and find a scapegoat, don't they? And, you know, if fans are feeling unhappy, they'll look at, well, why aren't these guys doing more for us? But, you know, you you can't help feeling, well, why didn't you say any of this when we were asking you to help us protest previously and when we were telling you what the problems were? But, you know, you, you've just got to accept that. That kind of goes with the job. And I think the, the social media criticism, I think you've got to divide it into two parts. There are people who are posting stuff under their own name, under their own profile, and you're always going to take that more seriously. And obviously, if it's a member, you're going to listen very carefully because they've obviously been someone who's tried to uh, support the organisation. And so that's an important criticism to listen to. But I think you have to discount the anonymous profiles and you know people that are effectively trolling. And most of the criticism I see, I see very little criticism from genuine fans posting in their own name who were prepared or would even come and meet you and, and have a discussion with you. And I'll always invite people to come and have a discussion. The people who've been our most vehement critics have always been invited to come and meet us. And some of them have and some of them haven't. And uh, the ones that have, I can say almost without exception, we've, we've reached a kind of consensus agreement, even if we don't agree on every point. There's been a respect between people but you can't have that with an anonymous profile on Twitter when they, they don't want to listen to your answer. They want to make their point. And I think those ones, you just got to discount, you know, whether you block them or mute them or just ignore them. You know, they, they're not there to, to get an answer, really. They're just there to, to make a jibe, I think. And so that's how I, I see those points. And I think what you've got to always remember is it, it's not about us. It's, it's not even about our club. It's just the world we live in, whatever environment you operate in, whether it's, you know, football for us or, you know, media, politicians. It's, it's just a very sad feature of the world uh, we live in. And you've, you've just got to learn to ignore it. You know, as United fans, we want to be united. We want to be all working towards the same goal and be together. And I think actually the vast majority of United fans are sick of the bickering and infighting. They don't actually want to see that. I think it is... You know, if you could do analysis on it, I'm sure you'd find it's very small numbers of accounts that are all doing these same sort of negativity. And most fans don't want to read that and don't want to hear that. They want actually for, to, to be positive and to support the club in a positive way and to actually enjoy their experience as United fans and enjoy the camaraderie you get. I mean, that's how I feel about going to a match. I'm there to be with other United fans and, and enjoy all supporting the team 
together. I, I don't like the the negativity, and I, I think you rarely do see that on a match day. It's something that's on social media in that in that environment, really. You see, to to back up part of the conversation we've just had, talking about people that tweet from their own account and whatnot. Me being one of them who took a, a swipe at you quite a while back when the fan share scheme and the sign for United came out. And to your credit, you contacted me, asked me for my phone number. We had a chat for what was supposed to be 10 minutes and ended up about an hour and a half and then ended up with a good few beers and a couple of drinks with our good friend Ian Sterling and yourself. And we had we definitely managed to to mend bridges and move on from it. So credit, credit and fairness for that. I mean, someone who reaches out to someone who's gone after them, it shows a lot of balls to do that. So that's a that's a fair shout. And on the topic of the fan share scheme, since I just brought it up, we may as well roll into it. What's the state of play there? We'll say the fan share scheme became very, very important after the European Super League. Um, a lot of time and energy put into it, a lot of effort put into it to promote it, to try and get it to where it could get to. And now, obviously, with India's coming in, it might murk the waters a bit for a while. But is the focus still on the same thing? I mean, fan share schemes has been something you've always been very concentric on. Is it still at the forefront of your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got to remember, it's literally written into our constitution of the organisation that we're there to advocate for, for fans being shareholders in the club because we think that's a good thing. It, it's about uniting everyone behind the same goals, pushing forward together, trying to break down the them and us to a degree. I know it's difficult when you've got some of the major shareholders we've still got at the moment, but you can see that that could change over time. And I'd love to be back in a position where we all felt that we're all fans and we're all shareholders and owners together. And and everyone's, you know, united pushing towards that same goal. In terms of the, the fan share scheme, I mean, the reason why it took a long time is, again, it's down to the Glazers, decision to do this dual class share structure which makes things very complicated we were told it would you know we were wasting our time and we'd never get anywhere they'd never agree to give equal voting rights to supporters and ultimately we got that negotiation and we got to a point where we had a scheme that was viable it wasn't as big there wasn't things a lot of things about it that we'd have preferred to be different but it was a good option I think for a starting point you know a kind of pilot study to see whether there's interest among supporters to do it. I think we've certainly seen that there is interest. You know, that Sign for United campaign generated a lot of interest at the time. Obviously, when the strategic review, which obviously is the ultimately ended with uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's investment, when that started, everything was put on hold. And, you know, we can't say with any certainty whether we're going to immediately pick that up again now. You know, those are discussions that are just starting now. And obviously, you know, he may have a different view on it. He may not support it. We don't know that yet. You know, so him being now the biggest single shareholder, he's going to have have a say in that because obviously any shareholder is going to have a say in the idea of issuing new shares, whether it's for a fan share scheme or for any other purpose. But I think what's quite nice about the um, the Ratcliffe investment, although we'd have preferred to see the money, all of it, going to the club rather than to, to the Glazers and other shareholders, he has actually done something which is a bit like the fan share scheme, which is uh, issuing new shares in the club. Or well, that's what, something that uh, is to come, of course, I should say. And, and if that happens, there'll be $300 million. It ultimately will go into the club through the issue of new shares. And that's effectively the same thing that we're talking about with fans being a part of that. And I think everyone feels that that's a positive thing. We want to see investment into the club 
not profiteering by by existing shareholders and that's what the fan share scheme would do it might start out small but the idea is if it works and it builds confidence and builds momentum you know it could be funding quite big projects ultimately and it could be making a difference in terms of you know the the size of the collective fan share ownership over a period of time you know we don't expect to have a majority i mean probably never actually uh, but even having uh, shares in the club gives you legal rights that you don't have otherwise and you can't be ignored then but i also think psychologically it just changes the uh, approach that other shareholders are going to have towards fans they start to see you differently and rather than just see you as customers to be milked they might start to to change their view and so all these things are are important but you know clearly we'd all like to see different uh, majority owners than we've got now and and maybe we're on the start of that road but i can't really say any more with certainty about where we're going with the fan share scheme because it's a discussion that's only able to be restarted now we've uh, we've got a bit of clarity on the strategic review i want to get your take on the highly publicized 1958 group and their disdain for must because it's quite clear from anyone that's on social media when you see statements put out you mentioned some of the anonymous accounts but a lot of these are coming from the 1958 and there's, there's no secret there they don't hide it what is your view on that? You better clear that you've nothing against people setting up fan groups and all coming together and working together. But where does this disdain come from? Yeah, I mean, I don't quite honestly. I don't see it like that. I mean, the 1958. There's been some slight criticisms from the official account, if you like, and obviously there are lots of followers um, who've been more uh, hostile, I suppose you could say. But I've spoken to numerous people who are involved in the 1958 and got on well with them on a personal level. We've shared the same goals. We're just using different tactics. And a lot of the time, you know, I mean, they've asked us for help with things. We've helped them, you know, with organising protests, holding banners for them, giving them, a, a you know, a place to gather and, and promoting their marches. And so, you know, to me, I saw it as it's a kind of pincer. You know, we're in the, uh, at the, at the end of things where we're using dialogue to have influence and try and put pressure on from one side. You know, and one example of that was we were pushing for an end to the dividends and that did stop. And I know some people are going to say, well, that wasn't you. Well, they can say that. But literally, that was a request we put in to the club through the fan advisory board and said the dividends have got to stop. Um, and, and it happened. Um, and on the other side, we've got the 1958 who were doing exactly what we were doing in 2004, 2005, right through until nobody was interested in doing it anymore in, in perhaps about... 2010, 12, something like that. But we said, look, you know, we support that. We think that um, pressure through uh, protest and pressure through dialogue are two different ways of maximising the influence we have to try and get a better deal for our supporters. Whether we can actually change the ownership through that, I think everyone's a bit sceptical about that, to be honest. But certainly you've got to try and you push as hard as you can. So I, I didn't see there was a conflict there. I think, you know, there are people probably in the group who have ambitions to be, to replace us, or certainly that's what a lot of their followers seem to talk about. We want the 1958 to become the new must, if you like, or replace them. And, you know, they're entitled to to form their own group and, and uh, you know, and try and build a membership and do what they want. But I would also say, you know, the Supporters Trust is there. It's got a structure and well-established. People can join it. Anyone can join. Anyone can uh, stand for committee. Anyone can stand for board. 
And to be honest, if you're setting up a new group to do the same thing, you've got to really ask, well, why are you doing that? Why aren't you standing for election and, you know, and, and making your argument and winning people over because you've got a better argument? And if you have, great. That, that's how the democracy works. As I said to you before, I mean, our problem has actually been more that we struggle to get people to get involved. But I don't think it's it's really appropriate to try and just form a new organisation and just say, right, we're, we formed our own organisation. And surprise, surprise, we think we're the best people to to, to lead that, um, that dialogue with the club. But again, you know, they're entitled to do that. And I, I you know, I'm not going to criticise them for that. I would hope that everyone is is trying to push towards the same goal and that we can have a better dialogue. And, you know, you will, I'm sure, have noted that, you know, we are very reluctant to try and criticise anybody else. You know, we recognise how difficult it is to be a fan campaigner, whether it's protest or anything else. And so, you know, if we have made criticisms, they're very rare, but they're not from a, an organisational standpoint. You know, so I think... If there is any hostility, it's one way, put it that way. But but the people I've dealt with from 1958 are good people who, you know, I've got respect for and I've had a good dialogue with them. So I, th I think maybe the perception on social media is slightly different, but the people I've met face-to-face -face have all been good and, you know, honest people who want the same things we do and have just been using different tactics, essentially. Deviating ever so slightly, but just returning back to something that you both mentioned in terms of dialogue and obviously mentioning Ineas and Sir Jim Radcliffe. Chris, I want to ask you in terms of strategy and the initial display of public affection towards returning the club to its glory days on the field, coupled with a very public meeting, what's most expectation here? Do you have any concerns or expectations in moving forward following the imminent ratification? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a long way to go and we're not celebrating any victories yet. The victory will be when United are back at the top of European football, right? And we'll all celebrate that victory. This is, we hope, the start of a journey and the early signs from Jim Ratcliffe and his team were very positive. You know, he he put out a message to the fans, I think, on Boxing Day, two days after, you know, the deal uh, was signed. Obviously, a time of the year when most of us have got a lot of other things uh, going on. He then moved to meet ourselves and other fans, representative forums, only, what, two or three weeks um, after that. None of which he needed to do until the deal was fully ratified, which it still isn't yet. He could very easily have hid behind the fact that the deal hasn't gone through, so there's nothing he can say. So the fact that, you know, he and his team proactively, you know, arranged for that dialogue with fans and spent three to four hours in one day sitting down with fans. I mean, that's more fans dialogue in one day than in 19 years from the Glazers by far. So, you know, I think we're encouraged by that. Um, Obviously, he's putting his own money in again, more money on the you know first thing he's done than in 19 years of the Glazers putting their own money in. So you know, 300 million dollars in the first instance. So look, there's 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 real sign for encouragement, but we are definitely not declaring victory yet. The road back for United back to the top is a long one, as sadly we all know, watching the club uh, week in week out. It's both about what happens on the field, which is Ineos's main focus. They're very clear on that. But also, I think we also know it's about the structure of the club, how the club operates. It's about Old Trafford. 
Um, you know, it's a long journey, but the early signs are positive, and that, I guess that's all all we can say. And I think that vindicates, you know, continuing that that dialogue with them. I think one of the concerns that fans would have, and it's a buzzword around Man United for quite some time, is debt. And yeah. Although Sir Jim Radcliffe and Ineos have stated they're going to invest 300 million US dollars, et cetera, et cetera. The lack, I think, of clarity or the lack of focus on the clearing of the debt is something that, that irks people. Obviously, we had the Qatari bid. Now, we've heard some sensational things about the Qatari bid since. But one of the, the jibes towards Sir Jim Radcliffe was that when he came in and Ineos came in, that the debt wasn't being handled, whereas Qatar, hypothetically, if they actually existed, would have eradicated the debt. Does that concern you most as, as a group in general, that there's no clarity or focus on clearing the debt or no dialogue directly towards the fan base saying, although we're planning on doing this and taking over sporting control and et cetera, et cetera, I think we'd still all like to see the club's debt be reduced drastically. And it's something that I think it bothers most people more than, more than it should, I suppose, maybe, but it is what it is. Yeah, no, no. I think I think the debt is an issue in a, in a couple of ways. I mean, it, clearly, it psychologically, it's 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 an issue. You know, it's always felt so felt so to me. You know that they 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 bought the club with borrowed money and then on day one transferred that debt from themselves onto the club. And in a stroke, we went from being the biggest football club in the world that had no debt to the most indebted football club in the world at a stroke of a pen by them 19 years ago. So, you know, we all, I think, feel very uh, uh, emotionally strongly about that. And they've never paid down any of the debt. And we've got more debt in in cash terms today than we did uh, back then. The debt is a much smaller proportion of, of the overall value of the club, of course. So if you think of it like a mortgage, you know, the value of the house has gone up a lot, you know, um, fivefold, and the debt has kind of only gone up slightly. So the debt, as a you know, as a ratio of the value of the club, has shrunk dramatically, but it's still gone up in cash terms. I think this is one where, whilst Jim Ratcliffe is only a minority owner, he's not going to pay off the debt. If you only own twenty five percent of a company, you can't, and you're not going to pay off the debt because the beneficiary of that is the majority owner. So, you know, I just think it's one of those ones where it's quite hard to see how there would be progress on that issue until he's in a position to be a majority owner. And I think we've been perfectly clear that whilst we're pleased with the stake he's bought, we'd be a lot more pleased if it was 51% and or, or 100%. And I said that to him in, in, in the meeting, like, we're pleased, it could be better, but we'll we'll work with what we've got. But I, I think in, in reality, yeah, I'm not sure what you can do on the debt until he is a majority or even a full owner. I mean, and Chris is absolutely right, of course, that, um, you know, Sir Jim isn't going to pay off the debt for somebody else, you know. But there are ways that it could be approached. I mean, you can do a debt for equity swap. So effectively, you know, you issue new shares, and you use the money from those. So, so, so Jim, like he's buying these, uh, you know, assuming the tender offer goes forward, these new shares, uh, you could do that with the debt. Uh, the reason why the Glazers might not want that is because it would dilute their shareholding further. So, you know, they've got a selfish interest against that. But on the other hand, we do need to, to pay down the debt. We need more uh, funds. We've got the challenge with financial fair play, which means that, you know, we're not able to compete as well as we would be able to if, if we've got rid of that debt. So, you know, 
there may be pressure to do that and, and we'd hope that the Glazers will agree and certainly it's the sort of thing that we will be advocating for and have done in the past to say, you know, we want to see that debt taken down because you put the debt on our club and you're, you're you know, causing us to kind of work with one hand tied behind the back to a degree. But of course, in terms of um, him making any comment on that, I mean, he is literally, you know, legally bound not to really say things like that because those are market sensitive things. If he says... I'm going to push for another share issue that has an impact on on the, the the perception of the market on the share price. So he can't say that he's got an ambition to do that at this point. But I would suspect he certainly has got that ambition, and that he'd want to see the debt paid down and and, and be a much bigger investor in the club and obviously a, a majority shareholder. But I just don't think it's something you can make a public statement on for the reasons I've said. The, the, the link. The link between the debt and our financial fair play position is something that doesn't get talked about enough. You know, we 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 have the same constraints of financial play, fair play as other clubs, and we say, "Oh, we can't buy that player. We can't buy that player because of financial fair play." I think it was certainly a consideration in the transfer window in the summer, where we, you know, we didn't go for Harry Kane, we didn't go for Declan Rice, we didn't go for the top players that were available, and the club will say one of the factors was financial fair play. We are only in such a big, bad financial fair play position because of the amount of money we spend on debt interest. Um, and that is money directly out the door of the club to the people who own the debt. And that is directly impacts upon the financial fair play calculation and leaves us not going for the best players available. Uh, and by the way, it's, it, it's likely to get worse over the next few years because the interest rate environment's changed and some of the debt is fixed fixed interest debt, which is going to change in a few years' time and is un, un, almost certainly going to go up significantly in terms of that cost. So there's a bit of a ticking time bomb there. And I think that's partly why this strategic review happened from the Glazers, because they knew they couldn't you know, carry on without new investment or selling the club. And then, of course, you've got the second aspect, which is how are you going to pay for the redevelopment of the stadium that we all recognise is necessary, whether it's a new build or a redevelopment. Either way, it's going to be a lot of money and the Glazers are not going to fund that, and the club can't borrow that much money because we've got the same problem with, the, you know, increasing the debt is just not an option, is it? So something's got to change there, and uh, hopefully we've got an investor sitting there who's got the resources, got the motivation uh, to to actually change that and be a, a bigger investor. We'll just have to see how that plays out. And finally, because I know the two of you guys are pressed on time, but I have to ask something. Sticking on what you were just talking, about with regards to finances and financial fair play and the impending doom that looks like it's coming forward with investment the only way that this club can successfully grow and build into the future is if everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet and there is a sustainable plan put in play over the next three five six ten years outside of that and looking at must what sort of a strategy and a plan have you guys got developed for the next five to ten years well, I mean, certainly, in t you know, specifically around uh, debt and investment in the club. I mean, we'd love to see, you know, the biggest untapped resource that Manchester United's got is its huge global fan base. Everyone knows that. And I think one of the mistakes that the Glazers have made in the past, and it's this idea that you treat fans like customers and you try and milk value out of them rather than realising that if you actually give fans a, an ownership stake, then, you know, there's a huge potential for fans to be investors in the club. And, you know, that's not just about tapping into to a, a source of 
of new investment. But I just think it's a virtuous circle that creates such a positivity around the club. So you imagine if you, you know, whether you believe that the global fan base is six or 700 million or more likely sort of one or 200 million, it's enormous. And it's one of the points of difference we've got versus a lot of our rivals and particularly the ones that have been effectively doped with finances from from oil barons, if you like, or, or Russian oligarchs. Um, and, and, and we've not actually taken advantage of that. And so I think that there's a positivity there that United could actually take a big advantage from embracing that global fan base and having them part of that. So that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why we favour that idea. You know, it's not something that can be done quickly. This is why we start with a, the idea of a small fan share scheme. But if you prove the concept works, you can see just looking at the numbers, anyone can do a back of the fag packet kind of calculation and realise that there's there's potential for a lot of investment. And, and what would United fans want more than to say, I own a piece of the new stadium or the redeveloped stadium because I bought my shares, I've done my bit and I own a part of it. I think that's such a positive thing to me. So, you know, that's really why we've advocated that for all these years. Guys, thank you ever so much for your time, your insight, and we look forward to seeing what you guys can unfold over the next five, ten year period, as we've said. Wishing you both the very best. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys. It was a bit of our eye, boys, wasn't it? Absolutely fantastic to get the insight from two lifelong Manchester United supporters. I hope each and every one of you listening really, really took something from that because it was a great conversation and great insight into the work that's been completed on a daily basis to reclaim this football club for the fans. And last Sunday, we saw United come away from Newport with a 4-2 victory in the FA Cup. Normally, that would be cause for excitement and applause, but within that 4-2 victory, I think there was more questions than answers, and it's becoming a very familiar topic. The game itself, I suppose, couldn't have started out better, lads. Bruno Fernandes opening the scoring after seven minutes. Kabi Menu getting his first senior goal for the club after 13. And it looks like Manchester United are sailing, have an opportunity to go 3-0 up, but for Garnacho, instead of crossing it, hit the woodwork. And from there, the home crowd, I suppose, were gone very quiet. They needed something to spark them back into life. And they got just that from Brian Morris in the 36th minute when his deflected effort really, really set the place alight. Two minutes after the restart, we're two all. And all of a sudden, you're starting to think, good God, this can't happen. Now, thankfully, on the day, Anthony and Rasmus Hoyland in the 94th minute sealed a 4-2 victory. And realistically, it was more than United deserved on the basis of what should have happened. Forget about what they should be doing before the game. Just based on the fulcrum of what actually happened during the 90 minutes, it was a deserved result. But again, there's just far too many questions. And it was a worrying victory, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, you're making hard work of it again. You know, you're going two two goals clear against League Two opposition. You really kind of expected them to start sailing, and maybe this is the one game where we rack up a cricket cricket scoreline this season. You know, it should have been that way, but I don't know what it is. Like the first goal we conceded, and no, did all make that was a great goal, and that it took it took a massive deflection, and go, no goalkeeper in the world is going to stop that with the deflection. Second one, we conceded. You got Rafael Varane, a World Cup winning centre-back, getting turned inside out by League Two striker. 
Um, goalkeeper didn't cover himself in glory either. But yeah, I just thought we made hard work of it. Same old as this season. Can't seem to put a good performance in. And that's going to get a little bit more worrying, I find, as the weeks go on, if it continues, because we're now seeing some of these players that we've been waiting for to come back from injury now. There's a few more to return. And if we're still talking of performances like this in two, three months, I think there's going to even be more questions than you're talking about right now. You just touched on the, the returning players. We saw Luke Shaw, Casemiro, Lissandra Martinez coming back. Look, if you really, really want to be sort of open, pragmatic about it all, they're, they're looking to rebuild minutes in their legs, okay? But regardless of that, there shouldn't be any questions against a League Two side, particularly a side that are struggling in League Two. Now, Brian, someone we spoke about last week in preparation for the game was Anthony. He bagged himself a goal and an assist. And there seemed to be a little bit made about his celebrations after the goal. Everyone's always looking to give out about something. And to be fair, I'm not Anthony's biggest fan by any means. The celebration was a bit OTT. I mean, you've, you've given the, the opposition he's playing against. It wasn't like it was a worldly from the halfway line, but oh, it is what it is. It is what it is. He, he is what he is. It was just... I just thought it was another stick to beat someone with, to be honest with you. It was it was silly. It was silly. It was over the top. Um, I enjoyed alternative MUFCs. I don't know if you saw it or not, but alternative MUFC do, do a great alternative commentary. And one of the themes of it was, is this an acceptable way to celebrate a goal against this opposition? The first two were fine. Anthony's was an absolute disgrace. And then Rasmus Hoyland's was totally acceptable because he's doing absolutely everything himself and no one fucking thinks he's thinks have passed him the ball. And, he gave, he gave the quote that Rasmus Hoyland must be invisible is the only answer I have which isn't a, probably too far from the truth because for some insane reason Rasmus Hoyland doesn't get supplied with much much supply from our, our wide men so ah, going back to last week's episode we were discussing what we expected to happen and although you were con- your two boys were confident with your four nils I said I gave a two nil con- uh, prediction Due to the fact that it's it's one of those grounds and it's one of those games, and granted, we should be getting more than what we got out of it, but that's what we are at the moment. We're not playing well. We're not cohesive. We don't link up very well. We just don't put in a performance that you can expect that kind of a scoreline. Like I'd, I'd love if we could, but we haven't been firing all cylinders by any means. And these boys coming back in, I really hope they're going to change the state of play because it needs it. How much of it comes down to the lack of clinical decision-making in the final third? Look, we, we've read about this for, for many, many years, that Alex Ferguson wouldn't necessarily focus on what happened in the final third, that it was left down to creativity. You see the same with Pep Guardiola. You see what multiple managers across the continent will say them and their coaches in the training field will focus on build-up play, defence, transitions, splitting midfield, breaking the press. But ultimately, when it comes down to the final third, there's got to be a reliance on your key attacking players to be able to make the correct decision. What I see week in, week out, and when you're touching on Rasmus Hoyland, I see our wide players and almost like there is a sense of self-entitlement from the wide players that if they beat a man, they're almost entitled to take the shot on. More often than not, it's coming out as if it is the complete wrong decision. Like, look at that Newport game and look what I said when we're 2-0 up. There's a great breakaway. Garnacho gets the ball. Bruno and Hoyland are running into the box. They're clear there for a tap-in. That's it. If the game goes 3-0, it's, it's certainly over because every single head in the ground is going to drop. He takes a shot instead. 
but it's just a continuous trend over and over again. Now, Garnacho, don't get me wrong, fantastic player, brilliant, brilliant potential. But his decision-making, coupled with Anthony's decision-making, just has an inability to be able to make the correct decision. And how much of that is affecting us in, in an attacking aspect? Well, what you're listing there, Sean, is a trend, right? You're mm-hmm. listing basically all the players that we play out wide are not contributing or not providing service. So that drags me back to, look, I'm one of Ten Hag's biggest supporters, but what are they doing in training? <laughs> You know, like that build-up play, like you look at our build-up play when it's effective. It's usually a high diagonal ball out wide when we catch a team on the counter-attack and it's rush, rush, rush. That's not really build-up play. That's not how the the teams that we kind of aspire to play like and the coaches that we aspire to to play like, that's not how they build up. They build up in phases and passes and, and you know, combinations in that. We, you look at us sometimes, most weeks, and it's like the players don't train together all week. No combinations of play. And it's all rushed. And it's all counter-attacking. You know, if, if, if you told me that we were going to replace Ollie, and two years down the line, we were still talking about counter-attacking football, you know, I would have wondered what's the point. But I guess we have had lots of injuries. Um, I'm still optimistic about the future under Ten Hag, but I think... What's getting a bit frustrating for me is, um, we're going back to, again, it's the performances. They have to improve. We know the results have to improve in the first half of the season, but fuck me, he, he comes out telling us we've controlled, controlled games for 85 minutes. You're there wondering, well, we, have we watched the same game? How many how many games, can, honestly, could, can you say where you felt that? The manager comes out saying we controlled that for 85 minutes or whatever he says, and you're there thinking, fuming for what, what you've seen for 90 minutes. So... Look, I know what he says publicly is different to what he says behind closed doors, but look, things have to improve. I know we won the weekend 4-2 into next round, great, but things have to improve. Just on that before I move on, I think if he's coming out and if all if he's doing is, is, is spitting negatives, he's just following the narrative that's in the media Monday through Sunday. Yeah. He has to be one of the very, very few people that says something good. Otherwise, it's just complete negativity morning, yeah. noon, day and night. Just to his credit, I know we're going to get onto this topic in a bit, so we won't go too much on it with Marcus Rashford. But with that whole kind of chapter we've seen out playing the last few days, I think Ten Hag has controlled that really well. You know, media are asking about, he's saying, no, it's an internal matter, case is closed, and so on. So, look, Ten Hag controls the media well at times. And, you know, if you, I guess you're right. We don't want another Jose Mourinho where he's coming out after bad results or bad performance and throwing people under the bus. That's just a disaster. We were going to talk about Rashford. Talk about Rashford. Uh, obviously, highly publicized now that he was out enjoying himself and then inadvertently called in ill. He wasn't in the match day squad against Newport. He was instead left back training by himself. And as we are approaching another trip to Molyneux against Wolves, all eyes are going to be on whether or not he's going to be there. I know that players are human beings. I totally understand that. And and I would be a massive advocate that the players should be allowed to have personal lives. I don't see anything wrong with these guys going out and enjoying the millions of pounds that they're making. That's perfectly fine. But is it fair to say that as one of the leading characters in a Manchester United dressing room, you should really and truly pick and choose your battles? And how much of that then comes down to the people that he's surrounding himself with? Quite clearly, he doesn't have capable people telling him what he should be doing. 
No, it, it's funny because we had a very similar conversation about seemingly one of his best pals in the, in the team, which was Jaden Sancho. Sancho making poor decisions, and we we spoke about it in depth. Then, is it because he's surrounded by bad people? Has he got the wrong advice coming in? Is there no one telling him wind your neck in and, and you've got to do this, you've got to do that? Sancho is now in the past for the time being, and we move on to Marcus, and then. I think it was Gary Neville during, or during the week or the last few days who said, literally, pick your timing. And it was a fair comment. You know, he's like, you, you can go for a few drinks, you can have a life outside of it, but like, go back to the city game. Myself and Dale were at, at it that day. We were back in the hotel lobby after the game, fuming, sitting down almost silently. He was in China White. During the week, he goes on the piss, calls in sick. Now, look, I'm no one. I'm no man to fucking slate him for that because it's not like I haven't done it myself. And most fellas can't say they haven't. But the thing about Marcus is, if you look at it one way, you can say right, all he's done is he's a young enough lad. He's a superstar footballer on big money, window on the lash, made a mistake, called in sick. Fair enough. And then you can look at it another way, saying this isn't the first incident in the last while. It's becoming a trend. It's not really that much of a trend because he hasn't caused that much hassle. It's just the fact that his demeanour on the pitch, his performances, his overall attitude, coupled with these little incidents on top of it, it's all leading to a question of what's happening with Marcus Rashford. He's obviously not happy. He's obviously not happy in himself. He doesn't look like a fellow who's enjoying his football or to be blunt about it, enjoying being at Manchester United, which is worrying because he's one of our own, as they say. I don't know. It's it's one of those ones we're going to have to see it play out. I do think that he got absolutely and utterly crucified by the media and crucified by even our own fan base to a level that was insane. I mean, okay, he fucked up. Fair enough. But Jesus Christ, he didn't kill somebody. Like It's just gone way OTT. And even to, as late as again this evening, I'm still seeing stuff on social media, Rashford this, Rashford that. Like, Jesus Christ, it's been dealt with. Tin Hag has dealt with it. Rashford held his hand up and said, sorry, we move on. It's not the end of the world. Of all the incidents and issues that Eric Tin Hag has had to deal with since he came into Manchester United, this would rank as one of the lower ones, I'm sure, because we've had some fair catastrophes to try and navigate around. Um, look, Marcus Rashford is an on-form, a happy... A, a Marcus Rashford who wants to be playing football is electric. And he re, we saw it. We saw it last season. Electric. We're not seeing it this season by any shape or form. The little celebration there the other day when he scored his goal and he gave the little talk and gesture to the fans. That's all right, Marcus, if you're after scoring 20 goals this season and, and someone's talking shit about you, but... You can't be given that guff when you're not performing week in, week out, and you're on severe money and a massive contract, and you haven't performed since the contract. So he needs to sit down and have a look at himself. He needs to have a chat with who's around with him, who's surrounding him week by week and day by day. And he possibly needs to consider, are these the right people to take me forward in my career? Because we've all seen careers that can be starting very well and going very well, take a nosedive for a season or two, and all of a sudden the player makes the wrong decisions with the wrong people around him and your career goes to shit. So I think he's at a very, very critical point in his career, especially at Manchester United. He's got a couple of months left in this season where I think he needs to turn it around. He needs to put a smile on his face. But my worry is Nicky Butt's statement on that, that video. I don't know if you saw it during the week that Nicky Butt, obviously after a few jars, openly said he's in a heap of shit or a shithole of a, of a dressing room. 
and it's been our, our concern all season and our concern for the whole season is the dressing room is in, in trouble and it probably is in trouble I mean it reflects on the pitch if they don't they'll say they don't look like they train with each other or they don't, some lads don't look like they like each other 100% and that's what we're seeing in the performances and the performances have been dog shit uncohesive no creativity no spark no no flair no expression that all goes back down to a bad dressing room so that concerns me in, in enabling Marcus to turn this thing around you're speaking about concern in a dressing room and being able to turn around performances. We're looking at a trip to Molyneux tomorrow evening at quarter past eight. Now, in one in one stance, Wolves have lost six of the last seven Premier League meetings against United. So we do have a good record there, but they're not necessarily entertaining games. We're talking about one nil victories, two one victories. And more often than not, they are 1-0 victories. When we're looking at those seven Premier League fixtures that United have won, five of them ended in a 1-0 game. Now, whether or not we're going to see Rashford in the starting lineup or in the squad, it's going to probably make an awful lot of the headlines. But how necessary is it for the side to go out there and to really, really make a statement against a Premier League opposition? Well, it's huge because... I think the next three games are really a week make or break in terms of having any chance to really finish in the top four. You look, we're playing Wolves this week, Wolves Thursday night, West Ham, who are above us currently in the table, and then West Aston Villa, who are currently in the table, above us in the table. So win those three games, and I think we'll be within touching distance of top four with something to play for. Drop points in those three games, and we, I think we can forget about it. Um, I think we can forget about it then. So it is crucial. It's crucial we get three points. First game of the season against Wolves this season, we performed abysmally and have continued to do that really since we got three points and you'd hope for the same the weekend. But I think going into this game, you mentioned that we have a decent record at Molyneux, but I think Wolves are on something like an eight-game win streak at home this season Um, in the last eight games. So, you know... That's probably not a stat you wanted to to be told, but yeah, um, that's against us. But look, I I also think that we've been saying for so long this season that oh we we'll get a win this weekend or we win these two games and this will be the turning point. Turning point is winning these next three games, I think. And if we don't, it's forgetting about the the turning point. I think we're then we're going to start talking about what Brian touched on last week. Um just getting Europa League football. Well, I'm going to add another statistic to you there, that since the 5th of December, only Liverpool have amassed more Premier League points than Wolves. Liverpool have 17. Wolves have got 14 points. And from seven games, they've won four, drawn two and lost one. So we're coming up against a side that are very much in form. But we are also welcoming back and have welcomed back a host of our superstar names. Now, given a lot of them are looking for minutes in their legs as we touch down with Newport, we can still look forward to that trio of Luke Shaw, Lissandra Martinez, Casemiro, coupled in with Varane. When we're looking at this and we're looking at United over the course of the season, one of the common topics that the three of us have been having constantly is about how we're playing, the style of football we have, how uninspiring certain victories are coming out and how disheartening the fan base is coming as a result of a lack of cohesion within that starting 11. For me, I'm on the side of the fence that is rather looking at the individuals that have not been present. 
And even at the start of the season when Martinez was there, he wasn't really there because ultimately speaking, he was carrying an injury and he wasn't himself. With the return of these players and what we can only hope is the return of some sort of semblance of a playing style, how soon should we expect things to improve across the board? It's a double-edged sword because the necessity is we see it straight away. But the reality is it might take time. So it's it's a it's a bit of a killer because some of them are coming off injuries that have taken quite a while to come back from. And any player at, at that level, when they're out for quite a bit, as you said, they need to get minutes in their legs, they need to get back to match fitness. Actual fitness and match fitness, two totally different things. The problem is we don't have time. We can't afford it. And Eric Ten Hag can't afford it. Because if our excuse or if the the let off the hook situation all season has been the fact that he's been missing key players and many, many key players all season, which he has and has accepted and is granted. When you get them back, you need to see an upturn in, in fortunes. You need to see an upturn in performances and an upturn in results. So I think it's becoming, it's coming to a situation for Tin Hag. It's make or break because new guy coming in at the helm over his head above in the, in the board and in, in the club watching him analysing his performances, analysing what's on the pitch. And if we remember what Sir Jim Radcliffe and the boys have said, we are focused on what happens on the pitch. So taking that as fact, if they don't see an upturn in performance, an upturn in results, and when he gets his, call him key players back and he has his strongest 11 or within reason his strongest 11 and a strong bench and the excuses start to disappear, he's in a, he's in a world of trouble. So, and as are we, obviously, for our season. So, um, my 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 concern, my biggest concern about this is our playing style. Our playing style has been dog shit. At times it's disappeared. We haven't had a, a recognisable playing style. Are we starting from scratch again, which is a bit of an issue? Do you know what I mean? We always go back to Arsenal. There was 45 minutes or however many minutes against Arsenal where we saw the Eric Ten Hag style he wanted to implement this season. That's so long ago, most of these players have forgotten it. And Ten Hag has had to abandon that because he hasn't had the players to, to go for it. So uh, I, I fear that he's going to have to start again from scratch right now with his full squad and say, this is how I want to play. It's going to take us time to get there. Does he have the time to get there? No, he doesn't. Because as Dale touched on, if we if we make shit of these next couple of games, the chances of getting European football, especially Champions League football, drift away very, very quickly. Then it becomes a recovery situation and then it becomes a massive question mark over Eriton Hag going forward. And I'd imagine the likes of Sir Jim Radcliffe and Ineos who are coming in and who want to affect on-pitch results, will be looking for him and looking for his head. So topsy-turvy time coming ahead. Topsy-turvy time and a necessity for his players to get behind him. That's that's front and centre because time and time again over the last decade, we've spoken about critical moments in managerial tenures for Manchester United managers where we learn whether or not the dressing room is with him. Now, we we know of various reports about player dissatisfaction, Dale. We know about various reports regarding certain players, obviously Jadon Sancho being the, the kingpin and he's now left for Germany. How much of what you're seeing across the board is coming down to discontent in the dressing room? And do you think that the majority of his squad and his senior players, such as Casemiro and Varane, have his back here? It's a tough question because I know there are players that have it in front. I don't think that, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say the majority. And and uh, to be fair as well, if you go to most dressing rooms, there's always going to be a few players that have an issue with a manager one one way or other. 
Um, I think Eric Ten Hag is under pressure. He's on thin ice, I think, because as Brian mentioned, it's not just player unrest. It's nine times out of ten when you've got new ownership or new people come in, they usually want to go with their own man. I think what this will bow down to is Omar Barada too. And does he want to work with Ten Hag going forward? That's that that'd be ultimately what it comes down to. As for player unrest, Sean, I think that a lot of the players that are causing issues and maybe briefing to the media are players that have done this before and players that have done this to previous managers. Um, and my fear would be if, if we want to go down the route of listening to these players and what they have to say, buckle your seatbelts and get ready for the next chapter when the next manager comes in because it's likely going to be the same noise. Um, I also worry about some of the other players in the camp, and one of them we mentioned is Marcus Rashford. And I know it got touched on with his with his agent or um, his representatives. I think that's the biggest concern. Um, he made some changes to that in recent years and got rid of a very good advisor. He's being represented now by family members, his brother, and his other brother helps out too. But I, this isn't always um, the way to go, as we've seen with Jesse Lingard, who, who I think now regrets who he had represented them down the years. Rashford is 26 now. He's not this blossoming young kid. You know, he's coming to the stage of his career where he's a man. And I look at some of the young players we have coming through, the Garnachos and, and whatnot. I don't think Rashford is really someone that they're going to be looking at right now as an example. You know, he should be. He should be. Um, he should be one of those players right now that you're talking about that's going to stand behind the manager in a, man, in a time of need and stand up for United and make a difference. That's what I'm going to look at in the next few weeks. Which players are doing that? Which players looks like it's going to put in an extra shift? Because this is squeaky bum time, I feel, for Ten Hag. You know, if the weekend, I was only thinking, if this was a disaster and we got knocked out of the FA Cup, are we now talking game by game? Is the manager under threat? I don't see many of the players coming out back now. I see Scott McTominay doing it. He's one of a few. But to answer your question, I don't think the majority are behind them. I think there's a few. But then I also think there's a few that we, we need to show the door to. I know Ten Hag has brought in a lot of his own players uh, since he arrived. But there's still several players that remain from previous tenures. We speak about player loyalty towards managers. And Roy Keane is obviously front and centre about players throwing managers under the bus. A certain previous manager is after coming and making headlines in the last few hours. Mike Egan from the Daily Mail has stated that Jose Mourinho, of all people, is eyeing a sensational return to Manchester United. And if you believe the gall in this, that he is left with unfinished business. Jose Mourinho, Brian, chapter two, what do you think? We discussed this recently when I asked you about a question on a graphic I saw on Twitter about managers we had since Ferguson and which would you rate as the best time to be a fan of Manchester United. Jose Mourinho, Jesus Christ. The toxicity towards the end of Mourinho's tenure at United was horrific, horrific. People always throw the thing he was the most successful manager we've had after Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah, the foot, and then I saw someone saying, oh, but the football was shite. It was shite. I know it's shite now, but it was shite under him too. So I don't see the improvement there. Mourinho, 
he's a spent force. He's a busted flush. I don't see the point in going back to Mourinho to play that type of football again. If you're looking at building a long-term plan and looking at changing the ethos in the club, what would you possibly bring Jose Mourinho back into the club for? I mean, even at his pomp, he was known as a three-year manager. Year one, brilliant. Year two, mm, year three, fall out with everyone and their mother, cause fucking chaos, burn the foundations of the club and leg it. It doesn't make sense. And I'm not surprised it's coming from Keegan or the Daily Mail because I don't trust a single word. If the Daily Mail taught me today was Wednesday, I'd be looking at the calendar just to be sure. So it's a sensational clickbait headline. Um, I'm very surprised to see Jose Mourinho being linked to this and the amount of, of, of catching fire it's done. Um, I don't see Jose Mourinho ever at the club. As in regards unfinished business, unless he plans to come in and sell Luke Shaw, who he obviously hates. Other than that, I can't see the unfinished business he has with us. Just move on, Jose, and head off to Portugal and manage him or something. You don't think that the special one has got unfinished business, Dale, do you? No, no. He okay. Brian touched on he was a spent force when he came to United first time around. Um, should have never been appointed. Should have listened to Sir Bobby Charlton. And definitely should not be reappointed after what happened the last time. I think most places he went, he left the place in, in a right state. And we've touched on it before when we when we discussed previous managers a few weeks ago. Like reflecting back on the end of his reign at United last time out, we all remembered how we really fell out of love with the team. The players, how some of them we, we were using words like hate. You know, hating their own players. Now, there is elements sometimes right now where you hear people going back that way and kind of, I wouldn't say it's as bad, nowhere near as bad. But that end of that Mourinho time, I I don't think I ever felt so much disdain towards United United players. So I definitely do not want to repeat that. And the worrying thing, lads, is there is a bit of a, a small group on social media that like the idea of it. And I think what they want is... They just want United to continue being a circus. Whereas Ineos, I think what their plan is, is to kind of steady the ship and give us something to, to hope for in the future. That doesn't involve Jose Mourinho. Now, it would not be an episode of the Stratocast unless we at least touched on a couple of our listeners' questions. I think that's only fair to say, boys. Now, I know we're strict for time here at the moment, but John Humphreys has come through on Twitter and he's asked a question for the whole group. He says, given that we are on the cusp of welcoming our entire squad back to full fitness, what is your favorite attacking lineup and where does Mason Mount fit in? Brian. I love how you asked Brian this first. <laughs> it had to be yeah, Brian. I'm gutted. Um, he didn't even give me time to think about it. Where does Mason Mount fit in? Jesus Christ. I don't know, Sean. I really don't know. I've, that's the same question that I asked myself when we signed him because the signing never made sense to me from day one so I can't change my stance on that I thought there was far more pertinent sect- or sectors of the team or areas of the team or positions of the team that needed to be looked at before we spent an absolute fortune on Mason Mount um, at the same time I'm looking forward to seeing what he can bring because we haven't seen much of him he's got a, a, an injury that kept him out for ages we haven't really seen any of him to be honest so um, my favourite attack is if we're doing a four-man attack, including the, the, the 10 position for the sake of argument, um, Garnacho left. Oh, actually, hang on. See, it's a killer because some of them have been playing well, some of them have been playing shit, some of them have looked well here and there. 
I was going to say Garnacho right, Rashford left, Highland up front with Bruno in behind and Mount on the bench for the time being until he works his way back into the side. But again, like Rashford's been so poor, can you trust him? So um, Let me put something to you because I know it's something that you often put out on social media. You know this desire to return to a 4-4-2 back to the days of two white men, two men up front and two men in the centre midfield. Is that something that we could work into here? Don't talk dirty to me, Sean, please. Not on this podcast. It's not suitable. It's, it's rated for the family. Don't talk dirty you, to me. You really are the Sean Deitch of this podcast, aren't you? Big yeah. man, small man. Perfect. What was ever wrong with uh, an Oil Queen Ray Houghton set up? Like, what was wrong with it? There was nothing wrong with it. Stick a little speedy left winger, speedy right winger, two hard fuckers in the middle, one that can pass the ball, and two decent strikers. Biggest problem with all 4 4 2 is the two striker situation. We have one who's a young lad who's set up most of his own goals this season because the rest of them are fucking useless. We don't have the midfield to perform it. So the 4 4 2 is out the window completely until Jose Mourinho comes in and signs all around him again. That's gone. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a hard question to answer because based off form, performance, and personal likes or dislikes, I'm not sure. Um, I'll stick with Rashford, left Garnacho, right. I think Garnacho would be phenomenal on the right, actually, to be honest with you. But I'm not sure it's ever going to happen. Uh, Rashford left, Garnacho right, Rasmus Hyde in the front, Bruno Fernandez tucked in behind. To be confirmed when I see Mason Mount come into the side and see what he can bring to us, because I'm not just not quite sure at the moment. But I can't like I can't realistically say stick Mason Mount in an exposition when we haven't seen any of them. Um, yeah, go with that. Yeah, go with that. Mine would be the exact same, but in regard to Mount, what I would be interested in—he's coming back into the side now from injury. He, what he needs to look at is what's my best route of getting into this team right now. I don't think he's getting in ahead of Bruno Fernandez club captain he's not getting in at him and I look at that right hand side and Rashford's form I think maybe playing we could play Granacho on the left Highland through the centre and test Mount on the right you know it, 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 it it's it's a position in which I don't think anyone is too happy with this season Anthony again has underperformed um, Rashford isn't playing well we've seen Palestri get chances didn't pull up trees not sure is Ten Hag convinced by Ahmad Diallo. So I think with Mount coming in, the money spent on what I'd be saying to him is, well, go make a position your own. And I look, I don't, I don't think he's getting ahead of Bruno. The last time we signed a guy capable of playing the ten, who can pick a defence apart from Chelsea, might I add? <laughs> we we stuck him on the right wing out of necessity, and destroyed a fucking top-class career for all intents and purposes. A fellow that should have been sitting in the 10 position and should have played that position for the rest of his career. I don't see Mount as a right winger. He doesn't strike me as a player who has pace-wise. Has he got the pace to go beating left-backs? So maybe he does. I just don't... I see him as a creative centre midfielder. I don't see him as going out as a right winger. Much the same as I absolutely am allergic to seeing Bruno Fernandes go out there. It's just play these boys where they're comfortable and capable of doing what they do best. Um, we're still, Jesus Christ, we're still short to right winger after spending a fortune on the right wing and bringing in players left, right and centre. We are still, still looking at the right wing going, this is a massive question mark, which is just testament to the fact that we fucked up so many transfers. I was about to weigh in and say, or use Jack Grealish as an example of someone that can play out wide. It isn't necessarily fast, but then you reminded me of how we were shoehorning Bruno Fernandes on the right-hand side, and I, I take back everything that, I, that, I, that I've suggested. 
you see, this is where I'll weigh in on this now because I don't think it's shoehorning him at all. When I look back through what Ten Hag is trying to achieve at United in terms of what he did at Ajax, he likes to play in the systematic blocks. And more often than not, what he liked to do was he liked to facilitate one wing to have a, a sort of a pacier player and an overload happening there. And then when he would switch it to the other side, he had a sort of a cataclysm of a bunch of very technical footballers that were able to go between one another. I firmly believe since he went for a mountain, since I first saw him being, being linked with him, was this is a guy that he's looking for a secondary outlet to provide that creative catalyst that Bruno Fernandes provides. Now, Mount is capable of playing on the right wing because he's played there for Chelsea. Mount has the capabilities to play as an eight. He has the capabilities to play as a 10. And he's also very comfortable shifting out on either wing. And it's something that Thomas Tuchel did with him quite a lot. He transitioned him during games from the left wing to the right wing to the central positions and mounted it seamlessly. Another huge attribute that I think he's going to bring to this is he is a player who buys into what his manager says. We've seen it under Frank Lampard. We've seen it under Thomas Tuchel. And by all accounts from all of the reports that are coming out of Carrington, when he's actually able to train and not injured, is that he's very, very receptive to the information that's been provided to him. In my humble opinion, I firmly believe what the manager is doing here is he's looking at obviously implementing into this 4-3-3 facet that we're seeing now. And he is looking at putting Mount as a right winger. But it's not necessarily to function as a right winger because that's what Dallow or whoever's on the right back is going to be doing in providing that marauding overlap. It's going to be Mount tucking in centrally. And instead of Dallow coming in and providing that support as an inverted fullback going into the 10, that's what Mount is going to do. And then you have that creativity in the center where we can overload an attacking third. So I do firmly believe he's going to come in in that avenue. Which means we have to accept Dallow being... All I'm right, just using Dallow as an example. I'm just using it as an I know, example. But, but you've also ruined my night, so I have to comment on it. I have to expect to watch Diogo Dallow maraud down the right wing doing average enough attacking football and make daisy chains while staring at the clouds going past at the back post in defence. Oh, Jesus, I think Hag is doomed. Ladies and gentlemen, on that particular topic, we have got yet another chapter of the Brian Murphy Poetry Analogues. We will be releasing a double-sided feature on this and you can catch it everywhere. If you want to continue any conversation with me, you can do so, reaching me at SeanConnolly85. Brian, where can they catch you? You can catch me on Twitter at DayTrippinRed and please, if you don't mind, or I'll visit you and kidnap your dog, like and subscribe to the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at O'Donnelldale. Won't kidnap your dog, my pet it, but do subscribe to the podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.